Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We're getting into Exodus chapter 6, and we're going to be covering a lot of stuff, but... uh, Something that I want to kind of draw our attention to is I think it's really common for us as Christians and just as human beings, it's just part of our nature where we a lot of times feel like everything's on our shoulders, right? Everything's in our performance. Everything's up to us. And it's funny that this sermon kind of landed in my lap yesterday. Um, Jason uh, is not feeling well, and that's not the funny part. I don't mean it that way. Um, but we pray he's healing and, and, and getting over uh, kind of chest cold and, and, and head problems and stuff like that. But um, we, uh, it's funny to me, ironically funny. I was just having a conversation with my wife this past Thursday where I was telling her I was kind of griping about work and I'm like, I just feel like the people who support me aren't giving me what they need to do and then the people above me aren't saying what they want and I'm in the middle and this whole thing's riding on my shoulders and all this kind of stuff. Like I use that exact term. And then as I'm talking with Jason, you know, yesterday, and he's kind of giving me kind of his rough outline and stuff, and I keep thinking, like, we're going to go through this where Moses is feeling like this is all on his shoulders, right? And he's feeling like, okay, God, you're telling me this, and it doesn't make sense. It's not working. And I go to Israel, and they sit here and tell me this isn't working. Like, he's, I'm this man stuck in the middle. And it's exactly what I was feeling on Thursday. So, ironically funny to me. But then yesterday, um, in the morning, I kept thinking, like, I had nothing pressing during the day, and I kept thinking, I'm going to waste this day. I just know I'm going to fritter it away because I don't have anybody, like, uh, needing me. And, and then Jason, you know, we found out he was sick, and so I, I volunteered to kind of jump in and, and pick this up. So anyway, um, we're going to get started, but just think about that, right? A lot of times we all want to, we feel like everything's on our shoulders, and we carry that weight. And a lot of times we're not trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ to carry that for us. As we recall in the past couple of sermons, right, we've seen how Moses and how he spoke to God at the burning bush, and God gave him these promises, right? God told him, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do with Pharaoh, and here's what I'm going to do with you. Here's what you are to go and say. And then when he's on his journey back to Egypt, right, God meets him again. Here's what you need to do, and here's what you're going to say, and here's how this is going to come out. As we get to the end of chapter 5, we're going to look backwards here in a minute, but as we get to the end of chapter 5, we stop and see how Moses has this sort of, uh, you know, lack of confidence, right? And he's, he's not trusting in what God is doing. And it's easy for us to look and kind of feel self-righteous and say, Moses, look at what he's done. He talked to you through a burning bush, right? Like God has been there speaking directly to you. And it's kind of stop and feel a little self-righteous to look at Moses and say, loser, just pick it up and walk. Just go. Just do your thing. Right? We see him break down instead of having courage. And, and that's the thing. You even look sometimes and you think, is Moses really the right guy for this task, God? But there's a pridefulness there, right? We've got the whole you know, narrative of Christ and his words, and we've got the New Testament. You know, we can look backwards and we know what God's going to do. But at the time, Moses didn't know what God was going to do, and it appeared like everything he did fell apart. So I'm going to ask you to look back into chapter 5, starting in verse 22. And we're going to read just the tail end because chapter 6 starts out where chapter 5 ends. And so looking at 522, it says this. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
So here he's complaining to God, right? He, he went to Pharaoh like he was told to, and Pharaoh took away the straw. He said, I'm not going to give you straw anymore. You've got to make all the bricks, but you've got to go get your own straw. The Israelite foreman get mad at Moses and say, look what you've done. This is all your fault. This is on you. Let God judge you for making our lives even worse. And Moses turns to God and complains, right? Why have you done evil to this people? That's a heck of a complaint to send to God, right? To accuse him of doing evil. Why did you ever send me? In other words, why did you pick the wrong guy? He says, you have not delivered your people at all. So he's criticizing God, saying, you haven't done what you said you're going to do. But God has mercy, and God has patience, and he has a focused will, right? God knows better than anyone what he's going to do. And so he's going to answer Moses here in the beginning of chapter 6. So as we look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it says this, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as the Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. I give them the land of... to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So God is answering this complaint that Moses has. He starts this off in verse 1 and says, Now you will see. Right? Moses and Aaron may not have anticipated that things would get worse under Pharaoh, that things would get worse before they got better. But God's not at all surprised because he knows exactly what he's going to do with Pharaoh. And if you remember back, he's told, he's told Moses twice, right? Pharaoh's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you go out three days to worship. So Moses already has kind of been told this isn't going to go easy. And God is promising, though, his strong hand will lead Pharaoh. So you see that in the, in the verses, the way it says, for with a strong hand he will send them out. He's not referring to Pharaoh's strong hand. He's saying, God is saying, my strong hand will move Pharaoh to send you out. My strong hand will drive you guys out of this land through Pharaoh. So it's exactly what God told Moses in the burning bush in chapter 3 would happen. That he'd say no for them going out three days to sacrifice, and it would take God's divine intervention of his mighty hand on Pharaoh in order to make it happen. So God's basically telling Moses, nah, things are right on schedule. This is exactly what I knew would happen. This is exactly the route you're going to pass through in order to be free from Pharaoh. And he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. You stop and look at verses 2 through 4, right? God is reminding Moses that he's done no evil to this people. In fact, he's made a grand promise to them, and he's never left that promise He didn't walk away from his commitment. He didn't walk away from the covenant he made with Abraham. Instead, he's reminding Moses, this promise still stands. Again, he's echoing the very things he told him in chapter 3, the very things he told him in chapter 4, the very promises he made to Abraham. And then God's reminding Moses of what he's currently doing. He hears his people groaning even now. So God saw all the interaction with Pharaoh. He knows exactly what's going on in Pharaoh's heart. In fact, he had told him, right, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So why wouldn't things get worse, right? This is what we should expect is going to happen. 
Because Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's not giving in. He's not interested in giving in at all. He's not looking for compromise. So God is not at all surprised with this. What God is doing, he's situating Moses as well as Israel to learn through suffering. Right? They're going to go through a time where things get worse and they suffer even more. And it's through that weakness that he's going to bring them redemption. So their situation may get worse, but ultimately for their good, he's going to work through them and lead them out to the promised land. So here in Exodus 6, 1 through 5, you can see how God speaks to Moses. As we kind of transfer over into to verse 6, we look through 6 through 13, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God's, I'm sorry, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel, about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So we see God giving direction to Moses Right? He's saying, here's how you will speak to Israel and to Pharaoh. So he gives this reminder in verses 6 through 8 right, of the promises and that he can deliver it to Israel and that he will do this. Yet again, he's promising, I'll deliver you from the Egyptians and I'll be your God and give you a promised land. Now note in verse 6, there's this promise of great acts of judgment. Right? He mentions this outstretched arm right, similar to that mighty hand. Judgment's coming for Egypt, right? This isn't just a promise of redemption, but he's making a promise to judge Egypt for what they have done to God's people. So God is stating, look, I'm merciful to my people, and I'll judge those who reject me. Stop and look back. Look at all the I, I statements that God makes through here. All, through, all from verses 1 up through, up through 8, he makes all these I statements, right? So he's got things like, I will do to Pharaoh. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I also established my covenant. I have heard the groanings. I have remembered my covenant. I am the Lord. I will bring you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land. I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. It's interesting. You see all these I statements. And how do we stop and reconcile this, right? And think about how Moses, what Moses is doing and what Pharaoh is doing. Right? God makes this self-reference. I am, I will, I have. 
Stop and think of Moses. What did he say back in chapter, I'm sorry, Pharaoh back in chapter five. He says, I do not know the Lord. Why should I listen to the Lord? Right? His self-reference is that he is God. He is the center of things. So Pharaoh completely dismissed the name of Yahweh because he saw himself as God. Now what about Moses? He accused God. He saw himself as a hindrance and says, God, why did you choose me? What's wrong with you that you would think I could do this? Right? Moses was being self-referential, right? Because he thought his success in this mission depended on his skill, in his words, in his eloquence, in his actions, in his ability to convince. And again, he's being self-referential as well. Israel sees their growing hardship as being Moses and Aaron's fault. But in the end, only God really has that right to be self-referential, to make those declarations of I am and I have and I will. Because for Pharaoh, he's under God's authority whether he knows it or not. For Moses, he's under God's authority whether he knows it or not. Israel, under God's authority whether they recognize it or not. Only God has that right to self-reference. We only have that right to self-reference us as sinners. And that's where Moses and Israel are. To humble themselves before their God. So Moses is commanded by God in in verse 6 to remind Israel and himself here of God's promises to Abraham. So again, God's not saying anything new here. But he's reminding them of a promise that they had all along. Let's look at verse 6. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. What kind of promise is this? I mean, this is a promise of redemption, right? That, that idea of redeemed, right? That's like a family member redeeming somebody who's in trouble, or like Boaz redeeming Ruth like that kinsman-redeemer relationship of a family member coming in to save you, rescue you, pay off your debt. It's a promise of redemption. And then in verse 7, it says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So there's this promise, not just of redemption, but a promise of redemption and a relationship, Right? that they will commune with God, they will be with God, he will be over them, and they will serve him, and there's this relationship. And then in verse 8, I will bring you to the land I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So there's this promised rest in the future. So God promises redemption and relationship and rest. Three R's, right? Very Baptist. Three R's. But verse 9, right, Moses speaks to God's promises to Israel, and they reject them due to the circumstances. So God's promising redemption and, and relationship and rest, and Israel saying, look at the mess we're in. How can you say this to us? Just, just take that message and leave, right? They didn't listen to Moses because of a broken spirit and harsh slavery. Just like Pharaoh, Israel and Moses still need to be convinced of God's promises, 
So it's easy to look at this like a David and Goliath thing, like Moses versus Pharaoh. But face it, God is working in the hearts of all of them, right? Pharaoh on one side, God's hardening his heart and is going to judge him, right? Moses kind of in the middle, trying to be this, this middle man, right? And then you've got Israel that still needs to be convinced of God's promises. Over and over again, God is trying to convince all and will do so, right? Everybody in, involved is focused on the here and now, and they're not thinking of those eternal promises of God. As we kind of get into verse 10, God tells Moses how to speak to Pharaoh. God picked Pharaoh to convince first. He says this, So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. It's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? To say I'm of uncircumcised lips. I don't know how discussion went in the small group on that one, um, but it's just an odd way to say that, right? You look in a lot of commentaries, and what they say is, well, Moses wasn't an eloquent speaker, right? He said that back at the burning bush. He said, you know, how, you can't send me. I don't know how to talk, right? I know talk good. And so, and so he said, you know, I'm going to send Aaron with you, right? God made him a promise. I'll send this other guy to come and help you communicate. But he probably, it, he means more than that, right? Because he could have just said again, I'm not an eloquent speaker. I know talk good. Instead, he said, I'm of uncircumcised lips. It's an odd statement. But we know what circumcision represents, right? Being in the covenant with the Lord, right? For, for this era. And so the thing is, is, you know, was Moses circumcised or not? Kind of not really the point here. Moses is seeing himself as still being outside of Israel, right? He sees himself as not being on the inside. He's saying, look, Israel's rejected me, right? I didn't grow up with them. You know, uh, yeah, technically I'm, I'm an Israelite, but I grew up in Pharaoh's house. I grew up in, in, you know, a whole different culture and all this. He's still not seeing himself as part of Israel. And if you look at the way he's, he's dealing with this through the scripture, right? He's still looking at like Pharaoh and his group over here. There's Israel over here, and I'm stuck in the middle, Right? He doesn't see himself as part of Israel. And that's where he's saying it almost, he's, he's saying like, my mouth holds no credibility. It's as though I'm not circumcised. I'm not a part of them. So again, he's, he's got it upon his shoulders, right? Me and how I am and who, who they see me to be is too limiting of a factor, God. And so that uncircumcised lips means more than just, I'm not a great speaker. It means I'm not a great speaker and I lack all credibility with them. So again, God says, you can see in verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So again, God adds Aaron to the mix, right? Okay, take Aaron with you, okay? Everybody knows him. He grew up among them. You think you have no credibility, Aaron can go with you. And he gave them a charge. Notice the the pronoun changes. He gave them a charge. So it's not just Moses alone, but it's Moses and Aaron. And so God has directed Moses to speak to Israel and Pharaoh. And what we're going to see next is how God shows Moses his true identity. It seems really odd, and I, I, I don't know if it came up in your small groups, but just how like suddenly this genealogy pops up. 
And it just kind of, it's almost jarring, like you're reading a narrative and suddenly genealogy. But it makes sense when you stop and think through it, right? Moses is saying, I'm of uncircumcised lips, right? I'm not part of Israel. Well, here's this genealogy to show, yes, you are. So it says this, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. Weird. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elsaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, and the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. So there's two things happening here in the genealogies, right? First of all, we're connecting Moses and Aaron back to Levi. So Levi had a son, Kohath. Kohath had Amram. Amram had Moses and Aaron. They're brothers and cousins in that sense. But you can see there is this connection back in the tribe of Levi, right? This is a justification of the fact that they are part of Israel, and they are part of the tribe of Levi who are later called at right to be the priests. And there's a lot of other names in here, right? You see like House of Reuben, and you see like Korah and the Korahites. And it kind of doesn't make sense that they show up here because it's kind of like, what's really the connection? But when you stop and look later in Numbers chapter 16, you're going to see Korah and son of the, some of the sons of Reuben, so also part of the tribe of Levi, are going to challenge the, the validity of Moses and Aaron's claims, right? They come to them and they say, you guys think your prince is over us. You think you're better than us, but you're doing wrong. Everything you're doing is a mess, right? And we can lead better, and they're ready to try to take over. And the Lord tells, tells uh, you know, gives, gives revelation to Moses and says, separate yourselves from them. Ended up, earth opens and swallows all of those in the rebellion. So that, I think, is why they show up here. But just so you know, if you read number 16, it's, it's really an interesting story, and it connects back to here. So if you want a homework assignment, there you go. But it may seem odd here to just see this break of genealogy, but we get to see why Moses and Aaron have some connection there in Israel, have a direct connection in Israel, and are being called to do what they're doing. And it also reveals something else that's important. And I know we've made this point before. I know Jason's talked about it before, but... You know, in culture, right, the first son has a birthright, right? The first son usually has favor, right? You see this kind of in the royal family, 
right? Right now where they, they talk about, you know, there's, there's uh, William and there's the spare, right? He even named his book The Spare, right? Because the first son gets kind of all the glory. The first son's the first one to get that birthright. Yet God tends to use the second, right? Or a later son often to do his, his work. So you stop and think about this, right? There was, uh, um, I lost it, my notes. Yeah, it's there. So you think like Jacob over Esau, right? Isaac over Ishmael, right? Second son's being used. You think like David, right? Had a whole number of older brothers, yet he ended up king. And remember, he was even underestimated, right? As, as they went out to find the new king, and, and he's kind of like, David, this kid, right? So the thing is, God uses those out of favor often to do his work, right? So here you've got Moses, right? Aaron's probably older. The way they're listed, it's, it's Aaron and Moses. So we assume Aaron's probably older. So here's this younger brother, the one shoved away in the river in a basket, who's being called to do the work, right? Not the older brother. Think about this. Levi himself was the third son of Jacob, not the first son, the third son. So this text exists to show Moses truly fits into Israel, and it also comes to show God is using what's perceived by man as weakness to do mighty work through. So as we get down to look at 26 to 30, it says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people from Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Kind of just recapping what happened in verses 10 through 13. Now, a lot of times when you hear a sermon about this chapter, you're often going to hear something like, you know, we have to overcome our insecurity to serve God. You know, he wants to bless us, and we have to overcome, you know, the, the mental and emotional problems of our upbringing in order to thrive, right? A lot of times it's, you know, if we're going to be healthy and wealthy, we got we to gotta have confidence, and I think if we sit and just kind of psychoanalyze Moses, like you could do that all day, and there's probably a little something to that, right? Here he's separated from his mom as a kid, as a baby, raised among a group of people that aren't his people. He's running from his crime. He's dealing with imposter syndrome, right? Feeling like he doesn't belong and he's not where he should be and he can't do what he's told to do. He's clearly got some low self-esteem and confidence problems. And it's easy to kind of dwell on that and say, well, there's our application, right? We all have to just get over that. But we would miss the richness of this text and what this text is really existing here for. And that's to bring us back to the gospel. So if we just stick to the text, we see recognizable spiritual issues at root. Moses is not trusting in the promises of God. He's not hearing God's promises, though they're being repeated over and over and over. And it's not different, it's just repeated. Moses is trying to carry the weight of all this on his own back, right? His own skill, his own eloquence. Instead of having confidence that God will do his work. And so he's sitting there wringing his hands in worry and anxiety. He's trying to depend on himself. He's saying, why me, God? Why me? 
And he's losing track of this promise of redemption, this promise of relationship, and this promise of future rest. Like I said, it's easy for us to look back on Moses and be like, man, why can't this guy get it? I mean, literally had God speak to him from a burning bush. But in truth, we can only look back on that because we have the rest of the story, right? All of this part. We know how God works this out and gives the promised land. And we know what happens through the different kings in the time of exile. And we know how Christ was born and we have the words of Christ. And we have the apostles, the disciples who wrote uh, to us all through the New Testament. The words of Paul and James and John and Peter. We know from Romans 3.20. says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We know that we can't be saved by our own skill and our own action. But through the action of our Lord, sending an intercessor for us. We also see in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, we got this slide here. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, he is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Right? Again, it's not our work. It's the work of an intercessor. We have far more examples of God working his wonderful power through weakness than what Moses had at the time. We see how God uses the humble and the meek and the out-of-favor people to do his work, right? He flips kind of that narrative that we think of in our culture and in our heads of of the, the beautiful, the strong, the elegant, the speakers, the people who can do these wonderful things as, as serving God, but really it, it comes through weakness, He uses weak people like Moses, like the disciples, guys who kind of flunked out of school, more or less. He uses weakness like you and I. His redemption is deep, and it has no bottom, and it never runs dry, and it will always refresh you. So I think a lot of times we fall into the same kind of trap that Moses does here in Exodus, right? We sit and we worry about, we fret about our days, We fret about our work and our parenting, our marriage, our legacy, our reputation, our government. And we often live in anxiety because we struggle to rest in his promises. That promised redemption, that promised relationship, that promised rest. So please be keenly aware of something. When I'm talking about anxiety, I'm not just talking about the hand-wringing type. That lack of confidence where we're kind of paralyzed and we can't move and we're just worry, worry, worry. We can also lack confidence and act totally different because we can dive in and say, I own this, I got it, and I'm going to strive, and I'm going to work, and I'm going to overcome it. I'll build a bigger bank account, a better house, a better family, whatever it is, right? There's two ways that this manifests itself. An overconfidence, I can do this, I got it. I got the world on my shoulders, and I'll carry it. And it's funny, I look for quotes of that, I, I didn't put any on the screen or anything, but there was a number of quotes where uh, it said something to the effect of, when I feel the weight of the world is on my shoulders, I carry it. 
And I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, that's not what we're called to do at all, right? And those weren't Christian quotes per se. They were just quotes on the internet, right? It's the kind of things you put on those posters that say motivation at the bottom or whatever, or hang up in a gym. We're not called to that. We're called to rest. We're called to humbleness and weakness and to know that we're not carrying the world on our shoulders no matter how much we think we are. We might wring our hands with worry or we might sit there and charge forward with all the confidence that we shouldn't have, right? They said, what is that saying, right? I wish I could tackle the world with all the confidence of a four-year-old in a Batman shirt, right? We say that like, I want to run in and do it. I want to own it. I got it. And we live this way ultimately because we want to be our own redeemer, right? We want to save ourselves. That's our first inclination of our heart is to want to save ourselves, to do better, to fix it, to perform better, to look better, to have a better reputation. So sometimes we sit and we want to redeem our spouse. You know, perhaps we annoy them with worry because we're hand-wringing, or perhaps we irritate them with nagging and criticism because we're going to fix them that way. We want to fix them instead of praying that God will do his mighty work through them. We want to redeem our kids, right? Sometimes we don't know what to do. We're scared of it. We back up and we kind of wring our hands. Oh, I hope they make the right decision and I hope they turn out all right. And sometimes we charge in full force. We become helicopter parents and we try to, you know, criticize them and get everything they do right. Sometimes we want to redeem our reputation, right? We want folks to like us and respect us or even fear us. We want to be respected and admired and we want to fix that instead of getting on our knees in confession and humbly serving God and knowing he has it all in his hands. So whether we shrink in our problems and we don't walk faithfully or we charge in and we try to own it, we're ignoring the fact that God controls it all. And all the real promises that matter are those I will, I have, I promised, I made a covenant. All those things he said to Abraham that he said now three times to Moses, right, that get come back in and and we see Jesus, right, making these kinds of promises to us. That's our goal. That's what we should be doing. Not trying to be the strong one, but being strong enough to have the courage to be weak, to be humble, to be meek, and to trust in God. We can't be our own redeemer. Jason gave uh, a book to us elders that, we, that I'm reading through right now and, and we're probably going to read through together soon called The Pastor's Justification. And it's essentially this kind of message to pastors, right? You can't control your church. You can't own your church. You can't carry it all. But he says this on prayer. And I, I feel like this is a great quote that, that stuck with me. And he says this, Prayer is essentially acknowledged helplessness. We ask God for his glory, for his help, for his will, And for his favor, because we know we're powerless to make things happen ourselves. Consequently, when we are not praying much, it is typically because we think, even in our difficulty, that we can handle it. And isn't this exactly what Moses is doing? He's thinking, okay, God, I'll go do it, but it's on me. And then he's going back to God and saying, I failed, it didn't work. And we do the same thing. We have our anxieties and fears and worries and places where we're stumbling and we say, this is a mess, God, this is a mess, but are we on our knees in prayer confessing, God, I can't handle this, and it's okay. I can't fix my kids or my family, it's okay. God, I know you have it. I can't fix my job, my reputation, 
my financial, whatever, like my future. But God, you've got it. I think as we either err on the side of impetuousness or we err on the side of anxiety, we can be refreshed and renewed and restored in God's promises when we're in confession and repentance and assurance of his goodness and a retelling of his promises. And that comes through two things, right? Scripture and prayer. And being on our knees and confessing this. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you. God, that you use weak people. Lord, that you call us weak people to confession. Lord, you bring us into your family. Lord, you bring us in and make us a promise of redemption. Lord, you make a promise of restoration. You make a promise of rest. You make a promise of relationship. And Lord, you never leave us in our situation alone. But instead, you've given us the Holy Spirit, Lord, to continually lead our hearts back to the cross where we can confess that we can't carry the weight, but you can. And God, I pray for all of us, Lord, as we we all probably have times when we sit in anxiety or we sit in overconfidence or times when we can't seem to uh, carry the weight or, or understand what the weight even is. And sometimes we sit in confusion, we sit in worry. But Lord, bring our hearts daily back to confession that we can sit in your, your promises. God, give us rest in you. And Lord, for the anxiety we carry for, for marriage and parenting and, and life in general, help take that anxiety, Lord, and direct it to a, a gospel-centered understanding of this world. Lord, to know that our children are in your hands. And Lord, you will do whatever you will with our children. Lord, that our marriage and our, our spouse is in your hands. Lord, help us, instead of focusing on their wrongs, Lord, help us to take ourselves to confession and repentance to be a better spouse. And Lord, we pray that you do your work in our spouse. God, take our jobs, our, our social circles. Lord, help us to rest in knowing that our reputation rests in your hands. And Lord, though things may happen that seem unjust, things may happen that make us look bad, Lord, things that happen that uh, might tear down what we think we're building. God, we know that you know the truth in all things. And Lord, help us to have the patience to rest in confession and repentance. Lord, to admit places where we are wrong. Lord, to stand before our brothers and sisters and be willing to say we need forgiveness. God, watch over us as we end this morning. And Lord, as we go out into the world and help us to rest in your redemption. God, help us to have faith in you. Lord, we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.